Joining us, Marco Papich is a partner and chief strategist at Clock Tower Group. Marco, great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining. Thank you, Oliver. Pleasure. So I want to start by talking about your general framework. Uh, I was reading about the way you think about markets and bearings a couple weeks back. Really interesting paradigm that you kind of operate off of that you call the Buenos Aires, uh, Buenos Aires paradigm. Well, what exactly is that? What does that mean? Well, you know, for the last 40 years, we had a very clear paradigm in terms of macroeconomic policy writ large, from trade to uh, fiscal policy to monetary policy to just uh, industrial policy as well. And that was referred to as the Washington Consensus. Many viewers you know, have heard that term before. It was sort of a set of best practices that were established during the Reagan and Thatcher eras in the 1980s and then propagated by the IMF and, and the, the World Bank around the world. Um, so that era is ending and we have something else and I needed to give it a name. And I thought, what is the opposite of Reagan and Thatcher's policy? And I said, well, you know, Argentina. Now, I don't mean here that you should just go and buy gold and Bitcoin and that's it. And we're all going to become Argentina. It just simply means that a lot of these best practices of the Washington consensus era are now moving towards something else. So on fiscal policy, we have uh, highly pro-cyclical fiscal policy that began before the Biden administration, began with the Trump tax cuts. On monetary policy, it means more unorthodoxy. Uh, and less sort of that established, you know, reaction function than most of uh, the viewers of your show are going to be expecting. Now, one of the things that stands out to me is uh, the idea that we have priced in growth expectations through some of the fiscal policy that's happened, but not for monetary policy. And you warn that the Fed is not on autopilot. Walk me through what that part means. Well, actually, you know, I was watching your show before this interview, and I think uh, the last... Uh, the last guest you had on was talking about today's market reaction uh, to the commentary uh, that came out of the Fed, and I thought that was really interesting. So again, the Fed has been extremely consistent, uh, painfully consistent, as I think your your previous guest mentioned, and I, I love that comment, uh, because the market has not reacted kind of until today. And what I mean by that is that when the pandemic hit in 2020, too many investors obviously became extremely bearish without the without realizing just how quick and how large the fiscal response would be but uh, this new paradigm we exist in this buenos aires consensus that's replaced the washington consensus it's not just about fiscal policy you know the fiscal policy is now fully priced in and investors bid up the price of dollar expecting that well us will outperform in terms of growth we accept the fiscal policy paradigm um, but the reason the dollar is going higher is because there's also a follow-on expectation that the Federal Reserve will remain orthodox and then respond to these higher growth and inflation expectations by becoming more hawkish. Hmm. Uh, and my argument is that that won't happen. Investors are going to have to, and perhaps, as your guest said earlier today, it's already beginning today, but investors are going to have to price in not just unorthodox fiscal, but also unorth unorthodox monetary policy. Uh, I don't think the Fed will react uh, to inflation um, at all, uh, perhaps not even in 2023. Mm. Uh, like in the notes, you point out, too, that right now as those hikes have started to inch their way through some of the pricing mechanisms for 2023, that that's going to be ahead of an election year. And your research shows that hikes generally don't happen going into an election. Now, with regard to what can move yields, though, and right now we've seen that the volatility in bonds has created some hiccups here for 
the overall kind of current regime in markets, even if the Fed doesn't hike, what's the role of the other part of the commentary where Jay Powell says today that he's not going to taper and he's not going to remove QE, but it seems we are long past the days of any more QE, and it seems that we are way past the possibility of negative rates when everybody was talking about that possibility just nine, 12 months ago. So what's that role going to have in bonds if in the past there was always a possibility that more bonds would get bought? If we're going in the other direction, what force does that play? Well, that's a great question. I'm not sure we're at the end of uh, no more QE. And, and here's a scenario I would, I would paint as one of my uh, you know, black swans. Um, optimism about growth could yet surprise to the upside. I mean, I think it's, you know, as it's pretty much as priced in as it's going to get. But, you know, we do have another two and a half trillion dollars worth of spending in the U.S. I think that the tax policy implications are massively overstated. I don't think that there's consensus in the Democratic Party to raise taxes sufficiently. Mm. So the net effect of stimulus will be, from a macro perspective, quite stimulative. So you could still see more upside to bond yields uh, by the end of the year and into next year. If that happens, I do think at some point the odds are, the probability, if you will, to be specific, is much higher that the Fed intervenes and actually uh, declares some form of yield curve control than it is that it's going to become hawkish. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't expect tapering. I would actually expect sort of open mouth operations, OMOs, that try to uh, dampen the impact on the 10-year yield. The ECB has already said this overtly by cautioning that they're monitoring yield increases. Uh, and I think that the Fed will ultimately be forced to do the same at some point, whether it's the next six months or the next 18 months, it's very difficult for me to say. Now, right now, this recovery has been uh, global in terms of finding a bottom at the same time, but very U.S. specific in terms of the rate at which we're coming out of that. You've got a chart looking at PMIs that shows that the U.S. has been ahead. Obviously, China picking up uh, to some degree, but the U.S. story is very pronounced uh, in that gold line there. That seems to be playing a role in this dollar positivity lately. What are you looking for to see if that reverses? Because it seems like your baseline view is that eventually this dollar is going to start rolling over again. I think we're already there. You know, I think we're already rolling over. Hmm. Um, I know some investment banks kind of threw in the towel a couple of days ago. Uh, I won't name names, but saying that uh, there's no more downside to the dollar. I think there's ample downside to the dollar. Um, I think that we had a blip. Uh, I think it was led by the narrative of growth outperformance, which is fair. It's a good narrative. It worked really well in the last expansion because in the last expansion, when uh, the United States fiscally stimulated, the Fed acted as an orthodox Washington consensus central bank and it raised interest rates. This time around, that won't happen. And uh, also another thing that, as you can see on that chart, I mean, Europe is actually doing quite fine. I think the headline risks from COVID, um, from, you know, like not dealing with COVID well and vaccinations, uh, that is that has really led currencies, I think, more than the European PMIs, which are actually surprised to the upside. Hmm. Now, uh, a kind of corollary chart to this is, we actually talked about this a little bit the other day, a similar chart from uh, Jim Paulson at the Luthold Group that looks at the U.S. growth relative to uh, the rest of the world next to the dollar, U.S. minus other developed countries. Uh, we were talking then about the similarities to 2018, where there are a lot of bear calls. Uh, that's the time that stands out to me in terms of how much I've heard bearish commentary on the dollar. And we can see how that kind of gap 
also at the time between the U.S. growth in the purple line there versus the dollar and, and the gold and how that moved upwards. Is there a possibility we get that again or is that going to take some further blunder by other nations? Has the U.S. head start already been realized? So one, yes, I do think the head start has been realized. But second, it's very important. This chart is really critical because what, what it shows, and the yellow is the DXY, of course. You can see how in 2018, it took until the beginning of 2018 for DXY to catch up with the trend of USR performance that had been established earlier in 2017. Why was there a delay? There was a delay because we needed to wait for Yellen at the end of December 2017 in her last act as the chair to respond to this outperformance with orthodox monetary policy. That's why I go back to this. Mm. Fiscal policy itself and growth by itself is not determinant for FX. If it was, then ever, anyone could be an FX strategist, right? If it just came down to growth outperformance, then you know we wouldn't be surprised by FX moves. And so that's what I'm saying in that chart. What's different this time around is the Fed will not respond the way Yellen did at the end of 2017, and we will not have that catalyst for a sustained dollar rally. All we had was a three-month, 3% increase appreciation in the DXY based off of just American data outperforming, I think both on the economic and COVID fronts. The COVID part, I think, is a very interesting factor in this where I've got a chart that I want to include here. Hopefully uh, you can see it on the other end, but I'll describe it for viewers as well, which is looking at the dollar and real yields, the 10-year real yield. Uh, the dollar there is in purple. The real yield is in blue on the top panel, and then COVID deaths is on the bottom. What we can see, at least what I see, is that we've had these periods where the yield tries to rise and the dollar tries to firm when we are thinking about progress on the COVID front, and then it's kind of stalled out as we've had that latest surge um, in some of the virus cases. And is there going to be this connection between the dollar and yields, or can you have your scenario, Marco, where the dollar drops and yields continue to climb. What's that relationship going to be like? Because over the past year, they've generally been moving pretty similarly. Well, ask anyone in an emerging market, you know? I mean, your yields can be 30% and your currency can be worthless. <laughs> Why? Because it's ultimately about the real yields. And if you look at the chart of the dollar and two-year real yields, you can see a huge gap. Mm. Um, I, think, I think that's what really um, you know, that's really what we're fo focusing on here. Uh, and, and the reason the real yields may remain low in the U.S. or may even go lower is because, of course, there is a risk of inflation. And then, you know, the compound risk of, again, the Fed not being orthodox, but actually pursuing an unorthodox, unexpected monetary policy where it lets inflation overshoot. And, and that's why I would be a, a dollar bearer. So it sounds like there's stronger conviction on the dollar bearish side than necessarily the bond bearish side or the yield bullish side. Yes, yes, okay. that's right. Now, Marco, when this comes back to stocks, last one because we're out of time, but when this comes back to what it means for the equity market, you've got a great chart that looks at volatility levels at highs, uh, comparing this to the 90s, where it seems like we keep finding uh, ways to compare to that period. Should that be alarming to investors? Absolutely. You know, I think we're in a we're in a world where I think um, a lot of investors are stuck in, you know, fighting the last war, as as we always are. Last cycle was long. It was a Charlie Brown cycle. It was very depressed all the time. 
Um, this is a manic cycle. It's unlikely it's going to be as prolonged as the previous economic cycle. What that means is that the market is going to appreciate much higher. It's going to be much more difficult to be bearish, but it also means we have much shorter period of time in which to enjoy this appreciation. Hmm. So trying to take swipes basically in like the last leg of the rally, is that what I'm hearing? I mean, you know, but that last leg may last 12 to 18 months. So hmm. it's very difficult to say. And, 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 I, and I take issue with the expectation that the Fed will come in in 2023. If that's the case, then the dollar will be really the mechanism where the bottom falls out. Uh, but actually, S&P 500 could go higher. The question for, for, for an American investor uh, or in a Canadian investor in that environment is, does it matter if S&P 500 is at 8,000 if we lost 50% of USD? In that case, I think the clear message that I'm giving investors is commodities in emerging markets should outperform um, US markets. And then uh, Marco, just to follow up to that, the bigger risk to US stocks right now is it that higher than expected growth, which could lead the Fed to get more hawkish and create yield problems? Or is it a real economic breakdown that's not supported this time by more policy? You know, I think the odds of the Fed turning hawkish are as near zero as they've ever been. So I think, uh, I think the risk is the first scenario you elucidated, but not in that the Fed responds in a hawkish manner. I think mm. the risk is that yields just go uh, extremely high, uh, that the 10-year yield is well above the dividend yield of the S&P 500, that growth stocks get further uh, killed, and that there's this like very um, disorderly rotation out of growth mm. into other assets. Okay.